2: Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, Business Affairs Editor, and this is Money Talks. This week, could a tiny country like Luxembourg make large gains from Brexit? We don't come here to take business away from London, we come here to do business with London. And is Abernomics dead? Our Business Editor says we should hold off on the eulogies.
1: We have a very contrarian view of the, the achievements of Abernomics. We think it has achieved a great deal.
0: First, though, the result of the
2: referendum is clear.
0: However painful that process may be. Considerable uncertainty about the economic outlook. So
1: uncertainty over the pace, breadth and scale of these changes. From Banking, uh, sales and trading. After a Brexit, we cannot do it all here.
2: As the City of London still reels from last month's EU referendum, cities from Dublin to Frankfurt are eyeing a chance to take their share of the post-Brexit spoils. So too is Luxembourg. A small country of 500,000 people, known both for its financial industry and its friendly tax regime. Here with me to discuss both is Pierre Gramegna, the Finance Minister for Luxembourg. Minister, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with Brexit. And first of all, how great an opportunity do you think
0: the vote to leave by Britain represents for Luxembourg? Well, uh, we have been saying since the beginning that we have to react with calm to this decision of Brexit that came uh, as a surprise for many, uh, for the Brits themselves and for the Europeans. We regret that decision. We had hoped that the UK could stay in, but uh, we have to accept the democratic vote of the UK. This being said, the city of London and the financial center of London is a major partner uh, of the Luxembourg Financial Center. In fact, you are number one in Europe, maybe even the world here in London, and we're number one in the Eurozone. So we're working together very well, and I'm coming here to say something very simple. We have been cooperating very well together in the past. We should do so also in the future. We don't come here to take business away. From London, we come here to do business with London.
2: In practice, the way the debate is seen here is that jobs will peel away to the rest of of Europe. So jobs that would have been in London will end up in Luxembourg. So you can still clearly have both centres or lots of centres doing doing well. But the marginal decision on where to put the next person will not be in London, but will be in, in Luxembourg, say, or another place.
0: Well, if I I take again the Swiss example, uh, the the two major banks... Of Switzerland that have a subsidiary uh, in Luxembourg, uh, have a couple of hundreds uh, of people uh, in our country. Uh, Obviously, compared to the high numbers of jobs that are available here in those companies in London, this is not so uh, impressive. What I want to say is that there are workable solutions that are credible, that are uh, showing that there is substance and that are um, conducive to business. Uh, that is good for both sides so uh, i think one should not over value this uh dilemma here. Uh, and one should also realize that uh, uh, open borders for, for good services and capital is a good thing. But open borders for people is also a good thing. Uh, one of the strengths of London is to be open for skillful people. And so I think that to, to find the right balance uh, in, in the four liberties would be a key issue. You cannot uh, have a cake and eat it. OK,
2: thank you. Now, on Brexit, that's, that's been a very big acute
0: shock. Uh, the big story
2: of 2016 in some ways, but there's another story that affects Luxembourg and that's um, changing attitudes towards tax um, and and treatment of multinationals in particular. And there was a LuxLeaks was the name given to the release release of documents in 2014 that showed that Luxembourg um, negotiated tax deals uh, with multinationals. And I wondered um, whether, as you reflect on that, whether you feel as a government as as a country were things out of control
0: First, I have to say that the uh, rulings in Luxembourg were not tax deals. Uh, rulings is an administrative decision that confirms the application of certain uh, articles of a law. So it's basically confirming how we're going to treat a situation. So it's not a deal. So you do not enter into an office and say, I want to pay this or that. That has been cleared. Uh, in the meantime, it's become uh, also obvious that in 26 countries out of 28 in the EU, there are such rulings. So it's not a specialty of Luxembourg. It's something that exists everywhere. And we've been able to convince uh, all our partners that this problem can only be solved if we act at European or world level. And that's exactly what has been done. Last year, under Luxembourg presidency of the European Union, it was decided that starting from next year in 2017, there will be automatic exchange of information on rulings inside the European Union. And by then, we will be able to see what everybody does. In fact, this is also in line with recommendations of the OECD and the G20. So uh, in this matter, India and Luxembourg has been part of the solution, not part of the problem.
2: And you mentioned the OECD rules. These are are to prevent basic profits shifting from the place where they're generated to a place where a lower tax regime, in effect, how fast are we moving towards that kind of outcome? When do when would you expect to see a very different kind
0: of tax landscape actually materializing in practice? well i just gave an example uh, of a change in the tax landscape uh, in fact the european union is going to be a pioneer by uh, enacting by the 1st of january of next year the directive on automatic exchange of rulings uh, we have also at eu level uh, last uh, june in luxembourg uh, agreed on anti tax evasion directive which implements uh, a bunch of regulations that were recommended by the g20 and the oecd in the so called beps initiative and So Europe is is clearly ahead of the pack. We must make sure that we all move more or less. At the same pace, we in Europe have been um, showing and leading the way a little bit, and that's fine like that. My country has changed its attitude in terms of taxation as we have abandoned bank secrecy to allow for an automatic exchange of information. And if I look back on on the last two years since we we did that change, I think that uh, we have rendered our financial services center uh, a service in in, in the sense that uh, if you want to be competitive in today's world, You you need to have a financial centre that's completely transparent tax-wise, and that's what we're doing today. That makes us attractive uh, for future partnerships.
2: Two of the three people who were behind those leaks were convicted recently. Here's some audio now from Antoine del Tour, one of the whistleblowers. To condemn citizens behind the LuxLeaks affair is to condemn the new rules widely recognised across Europe that these revelations prompted. It's also a warning to future whistleblowers and therefore detrimental to information that is crucial for democracies to function properly. So does their conviction feel right to you? Is there a need to change the law? Because the argument that many would make is that they did something in the public interest and it sparked a debate about tax that's led to
0: the changes they discuss. If you look at Montesquieu's definition of separation of powers, it is not up to the government to comment the decisions of the third power, which is uh, the judicial system. So they are independent. This being said, we are one of the rare countries that has a protection of the whistleblowers. So one should have to look into more details why there has been a rather mild but still condemnation of the whistleblowers in the specific. Case and I, I cannot and I do not want to comment on it. But what is clear is that our view on whistleblowers is changing. Uh, as I said, we have a legislation on it, few countries have it. It is another subject where we need at least European regulation, if not worldwide legislation, so that the whistleblowers are protected in the same way uh, all over the place. It is a very complicated uh, subject and uh, is being dealt with at the level uh, of Europe now. And uh, we are following this very closely. We're also supporting it because uh, in the same way, uh, as I said about taxation before, uh, if there needs to be a solution, it can only be uh, European-wide or worldwide. Do you have anyone in mind when you talk about other parts of the
2: the world, the non-European world, which is perhaps not uh, enforcing or applying laws as they ought
0: to? I, I don't have uh, anyone specific in mind, but it's clear the G20 initiative for, for changing the tax le- legislation worldwide as we know it uh, was uh, was taken by the 20 largest economies in the world. So we have to look at those and, and not only the developed countries. In the G20 you have also emerging countries or you have uh, uh, middle-income countries that are very large. And so we all need to act together because what we need in the end is a level playing field.
2: Minister Grimegna, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And to our listeners, don't forget, if you have any thoughts on what we just discussed, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Now we move from the financial aspirations of Luxembourg to the economic woes of Japan. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe took office after a landslide victory in 2012 determined to ease monetary policy and weaken the yen. At the time, his aggressive economic revival plan, dubbed Abenomics, resonated with a populace wearied by years of economic stagnation. Deflation seemed inescapable, the Nikkei stock market index weakened to below 10,000, and the strong yen sapped exports. Once in office, Mr Abe made a bold choice for the governor of the Bank of Japan, Haruhiko Kuroda. A 2% inflation target was set, backed up by asset purchases of impressive scale and scope. Mr. Abe also embarked on a programme of structural reform. Tamsin Booth, our business editor, joins me now to discuss. Tamsin, what's your verdict on Abenomics?
1: It's three years on from from the beginning of Abenomics, so it's a great time to take stock. We have a very contrarian view of the the achievements of Abenomics. We think it has achieved a great deal, um, certainly nowhere near as much as um, Mr. Abe promised and as much as was hoped but at the same time, the hype that surrounded the the project was certainly necessary to, to progress at all with it.
2: Now, I suppose most people sort of think of Abenomics and, and Japan's economic coma, if you like, in terms of deflation and falling prices. And the Bank of Japan has been pretty aggressive in trying to address that problem. Where do they get to?
1: That's probably the most obviously embarrassing aspect of, of the record. Haruhiko Kuroda, promised again and again to do whatever it took to reach 2% inflation. And the, the, the numbers clearly aren't there. Japan indeed is in terms of core CPI is once more mired in deflation, albeit very mild deflation. Many monetary experts would point to the fact that that's mainly due to the fact that the wrong index was chosen. So one that includes energy in the measure and energy prices have fallen. So actually, if you look at an index excluding the price of energy, the record is much better. And Japan, really, we, we would say that has largely shaken off deflation of, of the sort that, it, that it's been stuck in for a couple of decades.
2: Okay, so that's a, a sort of partial tick in the box for, for monetary policy. Another big area where Abe has, has been focused is on structural reform. And I think your sense is that, that more has been happening there, and particularly in terms of getting women into the labour force.
1: The conclusion of uh, many economists and observers is that Mr Abe has got nowhere at all on structural reform. We think that's too harsh. And in fact, there has been a lot of progress. I mean, probably the largest achievement has been on corporate governance. So trying to prize companies off their hordes of cash that they that they sit on um, and, and refuse to spend, which in turn contributes the lack of demand and can, in, in turn um, produces the, the deflation that Japan's been grappling with. So corporate governance is probably the, the, the biggest achievement. Um, Mr. Abe has also made a lot of progress on reforming agriculture. No one ever thought that he would sign up to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, an ambitious free trade agreement he did. He's taken steps to reform the the, the agricultural bureaucracy that stultifies agriculture. He's made a lot of progress in changing the mindset on the role of women in the economy, although there's a lot more still to do there. There's a wholesale liberalisation of the electricity market underway. And those are the achievements, but at the same time, the gaps are very large. He's done next to nothing on labour market reform, and also the changes on immigration, which are absolutely vital for Japan's shrinking workforce in the future. Very little has been done on loosening rules on immigration.
2: That's been a long standing problem for, for Japan, right? that openness to foreign foreign workers. Has he tried to tackle that at all?
1: Th- there's certainly been a very strong effort to get a discussion going um, among policymakers, politicians. It's a tricky one politically to take to the Japanese. There's, a, there's certainly a perception among in the political world that it's a sure vote loser to to suggest, you know, having immigrants from other Asian countries actually coming and staying, having families. That that's a sort of that's a taboo. Um, in the political world, I, I actually think that Japanese would be much more open to this than than many people think. And so, what Abe has done is start a discussion, start to have some sort of acknowledgement that it that it's necessary um to to stabilize the the workforce and he's just been sort of extending visa periods making it easier introducing possibly introducing a sort of japanese version of a, of america's green card system for skilled foreign workers
2: now he has just won a victory in upper house elections so politically his his fortunes seem to be fair what would you like to see from him Uh, in the years ahead. You've described a a number of areas where he's been making some progress, however halting. What would your agenda be? What's the one thing you'd like to see?
1: Well, I think firstly, it's certainly right and necessary to continue with the very ambitious monetary policy. And of course, there are concerns about whether that sort of radical quantitative easing can continue um, given that the supply of government bonds is is falling, and also given the level of um, Japan's debt at sort of nearly 250% of GDP. So there are concerns about that. But as our soon-to-be-published long article explains, I think that the, the limits on both QE and on fiscal spending are probably not as concrete as as many fear.
2: So to the extent that progress on structural reform has not gone as fast as we would have hoped, why is that?
1: I think it's fascinating to look at just why the government hasn't felt more pressure on structural reform, because it's been what so many people have been calling for, and I think that the government is extremely aware of, you know, the record of Junichiro Koizumi, who, of course, pursued one reform, um, post office reform, as well as uh, as banking reform, but the political struggle was over reform of the postal the post office system. So they look at that record and they've very consciously decided not to follow it. And the idea for the Arbe government is that instead of one big reform that you pursue doggedly, you choose many different ones that sort of together fit, fit a picture and sort of tackle an array of interests that therefore sort of change society, change the economy. So the aim has been to, to tackle... A lot all at once. The problem, of course, is that you risk achieving very little on any of them.
2: Tamsin Booth, thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read our story on Arbonomics, pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks for joining us.